You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. All right, well, um, I'm glad to see you here today. So this is part three of a four-part series on Jesus's passion predictions. Um, and, you know, I was thinking about this this morning and how it's really cool as you watch it unfold. This is really like a journey that Jesus is on with his disciples. You know, he's on this last stretch to Jerusalem, to the cross. And so this whole time that they're journeying, he is, is teaching them um, about who he is and about what he came to do and why and what their lives as followers in him um are and what they will be, what their what will happen to their hearts and their lives um, as they go on with their lives, even after his um, crucifixion as followers of his. So um, this is part three of four. Um, Jesus's passion predictions. I think he's trying to tell us something, um, and we're looking at all of the events that prompt each one of Jesus's three passion predictions um, and Jesus's teaching that follows each one. So why do we call this Jesus's passion? We talked about this last time, but um, it's not passion the way that we use that word today. We use that word as like a strong emotion that flames up really quickly and then usually fizzles away. Um, but this word passion is actually from a Latin word that was used in early Latin translations of the Bible, like second century, and it means um, to endure or to suffer. And so this is what we're talking about when we talk about Jesus's passion. That's why we talk about passion plays, Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, that's what it's referring to. And it's the time from Jesus's time in the Garden of Gethsemane um, to his death on the cross that we're describing there. Um, And then I gave the subtitle, um, I think he's trying to tell us something, to just highlight, a little tongue-in-cheek, the way that Jesus gives these repeated messages to his disciples and that they repeatedly totally misunderstand or totally miss what he's saying to them. Um, So um, weeks one and two were an introduction and Jesus's first prediction. Today I'm going to do a brief review to catch us up um, if you haven't been here with us and then dive into Jesus's second prediction. Let me pray for us before we get started. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, gracious Lord, I thank you so much for this morning, the opportunity to gather and worship um, in your name. Lord, I pray um, that you would use your word um, to speak to each of us today. Lord, I pray that there would be less of me and more of you, that my words would be your words, and through them you would be glorified. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So the disciples have been on this amazing odyssey with Jesus, witnessing miracle after miracle, hearing powerful, authoritative teaching, unlike any that they've heard from the religious leaders, um, and following this guy, this Jesus, who is totally irresistible to them, and at the same time, such a mystery. Um, And everything is pointing to the fact that Jesus could, in fact, be their long-awaited Messiah. And then, instead of scheduling a pre-overthrow strategic planning press conference detailing how the Jews will rid themselves of Roman oppression and become the great nation God intended for them to be, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to be killed. Huh. Yay, Team Jesus. 
So this announcement is followed with the world's worst invitation ever. Jesus invites anyone who wants to, to follow him. Okay, that sounds pretty good so far. But then Jesus says first that to follow him, you must be willing to deny yourself and take up your cross. Which means that when we follow Jesus, we give up being our own authority, stop having as our first priority our wants and desires, and submit our whole lives to the authority of Jesus Christ. When we follow Jesus, we recognize that all the world has to offer um, is rubbish compared to the immeasurable riches of his grace. We let go of the things to which we so tightly cling, assuming our salvation will come through those things, and surrender everything instead to Jesus, who is our only real salvation. We learn that our greatest joy comes when our greatest salvation Our greatest satisfaction is not in ourselves and in what the world has to offer. And we come to know that our greatest joy is found when our greatest satisfaction is in Jesus. Now, again, we might think that Jesus came at this all wrong. That he might have been a little less blunt, a little softer in his approach. But Jesus knows the urgency of his disciples getting this. It is literally a matter of life and death. The cost of discipleship is high, but not as high as the cost of refusing Jesus' invitation. Those who seek to save their lives in their own way lose everything. The price of discipleship is high, but Jesus is leading his disciples on the road where they will learn that he is the one who will pay the ultimate price. So, just when the disciples are like, I think I've signed up for the wrong team. Could this get any worse? Peter, James, and John get a front row seat to witness Jesus transfigured in glory right before their eyes. And when Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus, the disciples think, great, Jesus has called in reinforcements. This is more like it. But in the blink of an eye... Jesus stands alone again, and God gives him his full approval. Listen to him. Surely now the disciples will understand what Jesus is saying must be true. But when Jesus stands alone again, the disciples can only see a guy that looks a lot like them, who doesn't seem to have a clue how to save a nation, let alone the world, even though God has literally just drawn them a picture. The disciples aren't able to connect the dots that Jesus is the complete and perfect fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah who would save them through his suffering and his death. The problem for the disciples is that they keep wanting to skip over the hard parts and focus on what seem to be the good parts. Now, I don't know about you, but I resemble that statement. Just like us, the disciples want the victory, but they don't want them they don't want it to cost them very much. The cost of discipleship is high, Jesus teaches, but he also tells us to consider the treasure. In Matthew 13, Jesus teaches, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, 
went and sold all that he had and bought it. Does anybody have any comments or questions before we jump into the second prediction? Okay. So Jesus' second prediction comes from, um, remember we're using Mark primarily here. So this one's found in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 32. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Okay, so this prediction starts with they went on from there. So here's a nerd alert. Um, so I read this. They went on from there, and I can't help but think, where is there? So super nerd alert. I love maps. So <laughs> we're going to look um, at what he's talking about. And I had trouble with my little pointer thing, so I'm going to have to come over here and kind of Vanna White a little bit. So we're going to go backwards for a minute to trace the journey from... Uh, Peter's confession and Jesus's first prediction that happened at Caesarea Philippi right here okay and then there was Jesus's transfiguration um this happened oh boy this is a super nerd alert because so nobody's really sure exactly which mountain this was the two that um that historically are thought are either Mount Hermon or Mount Tabor, which is down here, right? Okay, so I don't know why, but for some reason Mount Tabor is the favored one, but it's only 2,000 feet high and Mount Hermon is 10,000 feet high, which sounds like a much more impressive mountain to me, but Mount Tabor stands alone, so maybe that made it seem like kind of more the place that something big and special like this might happen, um, but my money was still on Mount Hermon because it's just closer to where they were. Like, why would you trek all the way down here, right? But, I mean, I'm not God. So, anywho, Mount Tabor is where they built the Church of the Transfiguration. So, I guess it won the argument. But, going back to where we were. So, also, foot of this mountain is where... Um, there was the demon-possessed boy. Remember that the disciples, even though Jesus had sent them out with all authority to, you know, heal people and, um, and strike out demons, they were unable to heal this demon-possessed boy. Do you remember why? Yes. So this was a faith issue. So um, it happened, you know, like kind of the disciples had gotten a little big for their britches and they forgot like who they were leaning on in order to have the power to do this stuff. So they were unable to heal the demon possessed boy and Jesus healed him there. Okay. Let me see if I can get back on my notes now that I've taken you on a journey through my nerddom of maps. Um, anywho, so that is the there that we're talking about. The important part is, whatever mountain it was, that was where we got a glimpse of Jesus' shared, the disciples got a glimpse of Jesus' shared divine glory with the Father and the Holy Spirit, signifying a new era in redemptive history. So then, after the transfiguration, like we said, that's where we found him at the foot of the mountain, demon-possessed boy, all of that, apart from you, apart from me, you can do nothing. They're relearning that lesson. So when scripture says they went on, that is where they went on from. Good. 
Okay, so having completed his northward journey, right, they were up there in the north, um, Jesus turned south, leaving Galilee, headed to Jerusalem. And scripture tells us he did not want anyone to know. Jesus is now passing through Galilee in stealth mode. Why? Why do you think he's doing that? Why do you think he didn't want anybody to know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He's on a mission, right? He's got things to do. We know Galilee was where a whole lot of his ministry took place, so he's got like a fan base there. He doesn't want to get held up. Um, and this is a shift that we see several times throughout Jesus' ministry, right? When Jesus was rebuking Peter, he was only talking to the 12, right? He had like the inner circle really close in. And then when he starts teaching about the cost of discipleship, do you remember what he did? He called the whole crowd. Hey, everybody come. So now he's teaching everybody. And so um, now he shifts back to just the 12. He wants to make sure these guys get this. He doesn't want to attract a crowd. He doesn't want any interruptions. There's a mounting sense of urgency here. Like Carolyn said, he knows the cross is looming, and he wants to be sure his disciples are prepared for what awaits them in Jerusalem. So we've established that while certainly Jesus is far more than a good teacher, he is also a very gifted teacher, and he's about to show some more excellent teacher moves here. Good teachers build on prior knowledge. In the second prediction of his passion, Jesus once again foretells his suffering and death and resurrection, but takes the information he has already given his disciples and builds on it with some new relevant information. Again, we'll see that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Now remember, this is the Messianic title that should draw his disciples to connect the dots from Jesus to the conquering king who would save Israel, as prophesied in Daniel. But look what Jesus says about the Son of Man. What's going to happen? He's going to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, if the disciples are paying attention, haha, they will notice that this is new information. Now, on the surface, this new information doesn't really help Jesus' case. I mean, the disciples are already a little confused and probably pretty disappointed in Jesus' plan so far. The additional information that he will be delivered into the hands of men isn't going to do much to increase the disciples' estimation of Jesus as super destroyer of the Romans. Will be delivered into the hands of men makes it sound like Jesus will be the hapless victim of foul play. But this phrase in Greek is paradidomai, and it means being handed over, being delivered up, is betrayed. This is the same word used for John the Baptist's imprisonment, Judas's betrayal, as well as the involvement of the Sanhedrin and Pilate. Paul uses paradidomai to speak of Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. But paradidomai can also be translated to give over into one's power or use. The authorities might do the finger-pointing here and the arresting, but who is Jesus actually being given over to? To whose power and whose use is Jesus being delivered? 
this is an oblique reference to God. Absolutely. Jesus adds this new information to give his disciples the assurance that Jesus' opponents are not the ultimate authority here. God is behind the handing over. It is for God's power and for God's use that Jesus will be handed over. Does anybody have comments or questions? Sorry, y'all. I am shaking. I actually wore long sleeves today, and I'm colder than ever before. (laughs) So... Um, The Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men, and what? And they will kill him. Jesus still doesn't mention how. Remember we talked about last time that he never talks about, to this point, how he's going to die. But he does say, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Now, when warning of his passion, Jesus always, always tells of his resurrection. Jesus' suffering and death are solidly linked to life after death. God will have the last word. But isn't it funny that the disciples never address the rise again part? Have you all noticed that? Scripture says they did not understand and were afraid to ask him. The disciples did not understand this teaching. How is it possible for the Son of God to suffer and die, and why should it happen? There's a huge gulf between the disciples' expectations and Jesus' predictions. But underneath it are basic questions of who Jesus is and the nature of God. And can such a self-demoting God be trustworthy? Now remember, the disciples would not have been wholly unfamiliar with Jesus' ability to bring life from death. At this point, can anybody remember who the disciples would have seen Jesus raised from the dead? Mm-hmm. Jairus' daughter. Yep. So they wouldn't be wholly unfamiliar with that as something that was within his you know, ability. It's also prophesied by King David in Psalm 16, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. And also by Isaiah... I made a slide for that one because it's long. Um, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus' teaching about the very deep act of love he will express on the cross, which is at the very heart of his incarnation. It's the whole reason he came. Now, we can understand why they might have struggled with the whole Jesus dying part, but it seems they might have honed in on the part about him rising again. I mean, that sounds pretty cool, right? If it's true, it would have to mean something pretty great. The disciples saw the good news as bad news because they skipped over this last part. Now, we can shake our heads in amazement at the disciples, or we can acknowledge that this is all too familiar to our own experience. I mean, how often do we find ourselves more focused on the problems of the world than the promises of God.
It's clear that the disciples did not understand, but Scripture says they were afraid to ask. Now, I realize one never really knows how one will behave in the presence of the God of the universe, but I can't help but think that if I found myself with Jesus as a captive audience, I would ask all the questions to the point that the King of Kings would tell me to go take a teaspoonful of hush. What would have made the disciples afraid to ask? What keeps us from asking questions? Don't want to hear the answer. Sometimes we don't want to know, right? Either that or the cares of the world. Cares of the world or just distracted? In general, in your life, what keeps you from asking questions? Like I feel like I should have known the answer already. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I should already know the answer, right? The disciples are already probably a little... Be. What now? Scared of what the answer is going to be. Right, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. I don't ask because I figure people volunteer. <coughs> but, I mean, if they want me to know, they'll, they'll tell me an extent. I mean, I feel like me crying too much and what the Lord and Savior had planned that it probably just wasn't my business. Mm, okay, yeah, we want to be polite, right? Yeah. Sometimes do a fault. That he would have asked, yeah. He's always, he's not really a shrinking violet, right? But all of those things, right? Embarrassment, we don't want to look silly. We don't want to look stupid. You know, we think we sure already know, so we don't want people to think, you know, oh, she doesn't know the answer to that. Um, They're eager to gain Jesus' approval, right? They haven't quite figured out how that part works um, yet, and so they're eager to gain his approval. They just failed to heal this demon-possessed boy, so they're feeling a little raw at this time. Um, And denial. We Sometimes we just don't want to know. But what's at the root of each one of these reasons we don't ask? It's our pride, right? And pride is a huge stumbling block to faith. Jesus says we have to come to him like little children. And little kids ask everything. What's that on your face? Is that lady pregnant or just fat? Are we there yet? Why are you so old? Right? They ask everything. But we grow up and we clam up. We have hard questions and we pretend that we don't. Why do good people suffer? Why does it seem like evil is winning? Why me? We don't ask hard questions at our own peril. The question Jesus' disciples are afraid to ask leads them to incorrect Christology. An incorrect understanding of Jesus' death and resurrection can lead to a heretical understanding of who he is. Believing that Jesus was only human or that he didn't really die. I mean, what sort of deity lets himself end up like that? The Jews were looking for a mighty warrior who conquers enemies not one who lets himself get kidnapped and killed. But instead of asking questions, we read on and we find the disciples arguing amongst themselves. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So see, now they've made it all the way. Base of the mountain, right? 
and down through Galilee, okay, and now they're going, um, they've gone through Capernaum. So here we are, so he's starting on the southward journey, going to Jerusalem, and Jesus wants to know what all the fussing was about, but we read, they kept silent. Bless them. Why did they keep silent? Well, one would hope they were a little embarrassed. I mean, Jesus is talking about his impending death, and these chuckleheads are arguing over who's number one. You would think they might have been trying to process what Jesus just said, but instead, the disciples moved on to what they felt were more pressing matters. What was all the fussing about? Well, the disciples are still anticipating a major military coup, and they want to know who Jesus is going to pick as chief of staff. This is the second time in this scene that the disciples have remained silent when there were so many things, important, relevant questions they should have been asking. And what's interesting is if you'll remember later in the upper room, I mean, the questions just come pouring out, question after question after question. But even then, their questions are all about what and when and where. Jesus meant for them to focus on who. The truth of who he is and what that means for them and for the world. When we sidestep the hard questions, we turn to lesser things. Instead of asking Jesus about this very disturbing announcement he's just made, for the second time, by the way, or even discussing it among one another, the disciples begin arguing over petty issues of rank and status, posturing about who is the best, who is the most right. What if pride and embarrassment and need for approval hadn't kept the disciples from asking questions. What are the questions they might have asked? And what might that have done for their relationship with one another? What might that have done for their relationships with Jesus? What about us? What would it do for our relationships with one another and with Jesus if we asked all the questions instead of hiding behind a mask of pretension What if our desire to appear self-sufficient before others took a back seat to our desire to know all we can about our Lord? What if my focus shifted from how can I be great to how can I understand and live out my identity and mission in Christ? The irony is, as they're arguing about greatness, the disciples look really, really small and they know it. That's why they clam up. Well, newsflash, he's God, so he already knows what all the fuss was about. And so Jesus begins to teach, answering the disciples' question about greatness, even though they didn't ask. So the next verse tells us, And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, 
but him who sent me. When Jesus says, if anyone is first, he must be last, Jesus is talking about himself. Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus was truly first, but made himself last and servant of all for our sake. Now, the words that are used here are eschatos, which means lowest or last or least, and diakonos, which means servant or deacon. And we see Paul use that word often to describe himself as merely a servant of Christ, and he uses it to describe Christ himself. This sounds weird to our ears. Worldly power is measured by how many people serve you. Author and speaker Gretchen Ronovic writes, Ranking is utterly useless with the gospel, as we cannot rank ourselves when we are all being covered by the same works of Christ. Jesus teaches that true greatness is seen in service to others. This is one of Jesus' grand reversals, showing the upside-down nature of the kingdom of heaven. We see this in the Beatitudes. There are a series of grand reversals. We see it in the parables, too, like where the last, is, the last hired is the first paid, and he gets paid at the same rate as the workers that work all day. It's not the way our world works. Jesus isn't teaching that success is bad, but that success should be carried with a posture of humility, recognizing any success we have is a gift, not a right, and not where our identity lies. Jesus wants us to embrace last as a preferred position because of our secure identity in him. Well, this lesson doesn't stick. We'll see this clearly following Jesus's final passion prediction. But Jesus isn't done here yet. In yet another unexpected move, Jesus draws a child into his inner circle. Now, for us in 2022, this comes across as a really sweet picture. You know, oh, look at Jesus calling the child, and isn't this sweet? But to Jesus' disciples, this was just one more really weird and inappropriate move on the part of the guy they'd hoped would lead a revolt against the Roman Empire. In first century Palestine, children were seen as insignificant, like property, ranking somewhere between women and slaves. It was absolutely unthinkable that a rabbi would embrace a child. But in another grand reversal, Jesus draws this child close and tells his disciples that the way one receives a child is the way he receives Jesus, and that the one who receives Jesus receives God. Basically, Jesus is teaching that if we want to receive him, we're going to have to get over ourselves enough to welcome those that the world views as least. Now, understanding these grand reversals to be a call to be a pushover or weak would be incorrect. True servanthood is the mark of a person who knows who and whose she is. True servanthood is the strength that comes from knowing one's true worth and from whom that worth comes. It is the heart of a person who knows he is loved and valued with his identity deeply grounded and rooted in Jesus Christ. It is the confidence that our true identity is in Christ that gives us the courage to drop the pretense of greatness, to ask all the questions, 
to admit, I don't know, and to willingly trade the first position for the last. Now, Jesus is not in the business of corporate leadership training, but his teaching on the kingdom of heaven would be a good model. I've been fortunate to have wonderful bosses as a classroom teacher, as a tennis coach, and in ministry. And each of those wonderful bosses had different skills and weaknesses, but they all have had one thing in common. All of my good bosses have been servant leaders. They weren't interested in titles or bringing attention to themselves. It was completely normal for them to be engaged in tasks, even menial ones, alongside their employees. They cared about the people who worked for them and the people we served. On the other hand, I've had a couple of not great bosses who used their power to instill fear among their staff, showed little concern for those who worked for them, were dismissive of the people they served, and engendered a competitive spirit among their staff. These bad bosses thought their greatness was reflected in how effectively they were able to make others feel they were less than. But Jesus says, if anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. But the disciples didn't understand and were afraid to ask. Luke says they were kept from perceiving. Why? Why would the disciples be kept from understanding? The disciples were blinded to the truth plainly revealed to them by Jesus. Their blindness was caused by their own prejudices and unwillingness to accept the shame of the death of their beloved leader. Their blindness was caused by fear that their hope of an earthly messianic glory and their share in it was not to be. I found this quote and I thought it was really good. We must learn to love divine truths before we can understand them. This is a faith issue for the disciples, just like their failure to heal the demon-possessed boy. They are blinded to it now, but in time, the disciples' eyes will be opened to see that the cross has to come before a crown, and death has to come before a new life. Jesus is teaching his disciples and us that we have to trust him to open our eyes to see that he is all that Messiah was always promised to be. This is another one I thought was really good. <laughs> Toward everything which is contrary to natural desire, there is produced in the heart a blindness which nothing but a miracle can heal. Of course, we know that that miracle is coming. So, next week we will look at Jesus' third and final passion prediction. Does anybody have any questions or comments? You have a great job. Oh, thank you. Very good. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> Okay, well, I will pray for us and we'll get out a couple minutes early today. All right, let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, gracious Lord, I thank you for this time. Um, Lord, thank you um, for every opportunity we have to gather in your name. Lord, I pray that uh, where we're afraid um, to ask all the questions, Lord, um, that you would just fill us um, with such assurance of your grace that we would find freedom to um, be wrong, to not know, to um, be last, to, um, to put others first. Um, and to admit um, where we're wrong. Lord, um, I pray that you would use your word, your teaching today um, to transform our hearts and that we would be like little children, come to you as little children and receive you um, as, a, as we would a little child. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. To audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.